0: Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Ether, chapter 12. Well, so far in the book of Ether, we have traveled with Jared and his brother and their families, and their friends, this uh, group of people that became known as the Jaredites. We've traveled with them from the area of the Tower of Babel in chapter 1, all the way to the Promised Land uh, in chapter 6. And Moroni has taught us a great deal along the way as well, especially with his editorial interjections in Ether chapters 4 and 5. Then, after the arrival of the Jaredites to the Promised Land in Ether chapter 6, We read of the succession of Jaredite kings through the centuries, and so we've read of that in Ether chapters 7 through 11. So this brings us now to this wonderful and transformational chapter, Ether chapter 12. In fact, this is the chapter we can tell when Moroni thought that he was giving his final farewell. And like chapters 4 and 5, Ether chapter 12 is also a departure from the storytelling narrative. And it contains Moroni's teachings almost exclusively. Ether chapter 12 has three particularly famous verses that are often read in a standalone fashion. The first is in verse 4, and that verse is regarding the fruits of faith, and that's actually Ether's teaching. The next is Ether chapter 12 verse 6, and that verse talks about the trial of faith. That actually is Moroni's teaching. Then, of course, there's the great verse 27. And verse 27 teaches us about the utility of weakness and how it is that weakness can bring us to the ever-desirable state of humility. This is a state, by the way, that was uh, not easy for the Jaredites to come by. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But this great verse is actually a direct quotation from the Lord. So even taken alone, the influence of these particular verses upon readers of the Book of Mormon really cannot be overstated. However, they are couched in additional teachings that bring us a great deal more when this chapter is appreciated as a whole. In other words, I think it's good to see that these three very special verses take on even more beauty and significance when they are fully clothed in the context of the entire chapter. So with that in mind... Uh, before we move into the text, let's take a moment and consider that context. We know that over the last five chapters of the Book of Ether, in Ether chapters 7 through 11, the narrative has quickly progressed through the succession of many Jaredite kings. And as we have discussed, this was the same succession, albeit in reverse order, of the genealogy that was given to us in Ether. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 6 through 32. And in these unique chapters, we read of some kings who ruled in righteousness, while others ruled in abject wickedness. And we read of some kings who ruled in freedom, while others lived out all of their days in captivity. Some of the more memorable examples of these rulers were Oriha, for example, who we were introduced to at the end of Ether chapter 6 who was the first king in this succession and who was the son of Jared. We were told in verse 30 of Ether chapter six that Orihah did walk humbly before the Lord and did remember how great things the Lord had done for his father. And again, of course, his father is Jared. And this is reference to the way in which a new generation comes about after Jared and his brother. And this new generation remembers the way in which they crossed the waters under the guiding hand of God. Then in Ether chapter 7, we read of King Shul, and he too was righteous. In verse 27 of Ether chapter 7, we read that Shul remembered the great things that the Lord had done for his fathers in bringing them across the deep into the promised land, wherefore he did execute judgment and righteousness all his days. So again, Oriha's righteousness and Shul's righteousness seems to be contingent upon the remembrance of the exile of their ancestors. Ether chapter 8 brought us to this character named Jared, a very different Jared from the father of Oriha and the brother of Mahanrai Moriankumer. This Jared, who was expert in his own right, uh, as a flatterer in particular, we were told at the beginning of Ether chapter 8, conspired with his daughter, who also was exceedingly expert, uh, undoubtedly in the art of manipulating people. They employed Akish in a conspiracy, or more specifically, a secret combination So that jared could regain the throne so we read all about that in ether chapter 8 another notable king during this succession was the righteous king emir we read about him in ether chapter 9. verse 21 told us that emir did execute judgment and righteousness all his days then amazingly the next verse told us that emir even saw the son of righteousness and did rejoice and glory in his day and then it told us that he ultimately died in peace Later, we read of a wicked king named Heth, who actually commanded the people to cast prophets into pits. This was the prelude to the great famine that produced poisonous serpents at the end of Ether chapter 9. Another very notable character in this succession was Ripplicash, who we read of in Ether chapter 7, who really had much in common with the wicked king Noah. We were told in verse 5, that Ryplikash did have many wives and concubines and did lay that upon men's shoulders, which was grievous to be born, yea, he did tax them with heavy taxes. Then, like King Noah, we read of Ryplikash's great building campaign, and we even read in verse 6 that he did erect him an exceedingly beautiful throne. Ryplikash was a usurper, and he took both the labor and the money from the people through excessive taxation and imprisonment, This wasn't a sustainable way to rule. He was ultimately replaced by Morianton, who also was wicked in his own right, but he did ease the burdens of the people. So we read of these two characters in Ether chapter 10. Then we read of another era of prosperity and righteousness that was presided over by King Lib. Verse 19 of Ether chapter 10 told us that Lib also did that which was good in the sight of the Lord. And happily, during his reign... The poisonous serpents were destroyed, and of course that told us that those serpents that emerged at the end of Ether chapter 9 had been around for several generations before they were finally eradicated under Lib's rule. Well, many other memorable kings could be mentioned here as we consider what it is that we've read from Ether chapters 7 through 11, but the final character that we came to in this long succession was in verse 23 of the previous chapter. And he was a man named Ether, the son of the captive king Corianter, and the grandson of the wicked king Moron. And this was all that we learned about Ether in that chapter. So in other words, as with many of his kingly predecessors, we only learned of Ether's lineage. We would rightfully expect then, as we move into this chapter, to simply see a continuation of Ether's story and... I think we would expect it to cover the same topics that concerned Ether's predecessors. Namely, will this Ether be the next captive king, just like his father, or will he be able to overcome captivity and take back the kingdom from the successor of the mighty man we read of in verse 17 of Ether chapter 17, who is a descendant of the brother of Jared and who conquered Ether's grandfather Moron. So these are the issues that are on our minds as readers when we come into Ether chapter 12. And so when we turn to chapter 12, it is true that the story of this latest Jaredite successor to the throne, Ether, uh, that his story does continue, however, not in the way that we would expect. Ether apparently does not seek the throne at all. Instead, we will come to discover that he was a prophet. In fact, verse 2 of chapter 12 will tell us that Ether was a prophet of the Lord. And as we will see in our reading of Ether chapter 12 and beyond as we come through the end of the book of Ether, Ether was a remarkable prophet in a number of ways. For example, we'll learn in our reading of this chapter, in Ether chapter 12 verse 2, that Ether could not be restrained because of the spirit of the Lord which was in him. Something similar was said about Alma, who in Alma chapter 43 verse 1 could not rest, and he also went forth. Jeremiah's language might be the most memorable along these lines, when he said that his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. That comes from Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. So Ether had something in common with these great prophets. We will also see that Ether was a holy man who lived in the midst of a very degenerate society. In fact, it's a relief to us to know that, I think, and to know that such a thing is possible since we live in a similar time. Elder Boyd K. Packer once said of our time, and this is out of an address to CES religious educators in uh, February of 2004 called The One Pure Defense. Uh, He said, I know of nothing in the history of the church or in the history of the world to compare with our present circumstances. Nothing happened in Sodom and Gomorrah which exceeds in wickedness and depravity that which surrounds us now. Words of profanity, vulgarity, and blasphemy are heard everywhere. Unspeakable wickedness and perversion were once hidden in dark places. Now they are in the open, even accorded legal protection. At Sodom and Gomorrah, these things were localized. Now they are spread across the world, and they are among us. So since like Moroni... Aether was at the very end of a declining civilization, we can see that during a season, at least, uh, it is possible for the people to access such a prophet during such a time. Other remarkable aspects of Aether's ministry are that we can see that he witnesses the end of his entire civilization, again like Moroni. And in fact, Aether retreats to a place of hiding, and this cavity of a rock in which he hides is mentioned four times in Ether chapter thirteen. Then there is Ether's ability to prophesy, and I think that we can say that his prescience was evenly matched with his boldness, because there's an incident where he tells the mighty king Coriantumr in Ether chapter thirteen verses twenty through twenty-one that if Coriantumr would repent and all his household, the Lord would give unto him his kingdom and spare the people; otherwise, they should be destroyed and all his household save it were himself. And he, again, this is Coriantumar that Ether is speaking to directly. Coriantumar should only live to see the fulfilling of the prophecies which had been spoken concerning another people receiving the land for their inheritance. And Coriantumar should receive a burial by them, and every soul should be destroyed save it were Coriantumar. Well, we have already seen the striking fulfillment of this very detailed prophecy, when we read of a people in the Book of Omni, the Mulekites, who did encounter and bury Coriantomer, in exactly the way that Ether predicted. We read there, and this is something that we'll review later when we come into Ether chapter thirteen, that this Coriantomer was discovered by the people of Zarahemla, and he dwelt with them for the space of nine moons. So Ether's abilities and power as a prophet are on full display, I think, in this particular incident. So Ether was truly a great prophet, and perhaps the most remarkable aspect of his ministry was his teachings, and they will be presented to us in the next two chapters in particular, in Ether chapters 12 and 13. Both of these chapters will be a break from the storytelling narrative. In this chapter, Ether's teachings involve faith. He teaches in verse 3 of Ether chapter 12 that by faith all things are fulfilled, which is certainly the basis for a sermon in and of itself, something I think we would all like to hear Ether expand upon some day. Then he says in verse 4, Wherefore, whoso believeth in God, might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. We will learn in chapter 12, then, that the people will respond poorly to these teachings by ether. This is not surprising, given the way in which the Jaredites regarded the prophets who appeared among them in three separate instances in the previous chapter. So, we know quite a bit about the spiritual state of these people when ether comes among them and preaches these great things. However, what Moroni will do here is to bring out a specific aspect of the people's poor response. He says in verse 5 that they did not believe the great and marvelous things that Ether prophesied, specifically because they saw them not. Well, this teaching of Ether and the people's poor response to his teaching because they saw these marvelous things not provides Moroni with a launching off point from this point forward in the chapter for teachings of his own regarding faith. This really amounts to one of the finest treatises on the subject of faith that we find in the Book of Mormon, and so the rest of Ether chapter 12 will contain Moroni's teachings. Moroni will begin this discourse by discussing the problem of not seeing, again referencing these Jaredites who were not impressed with Ether's teachings because they could not see the great and marvelous things that he was talking about. So he tells us that not seeing was the very issue that prevented Ether's people from believing his teachings. And it's this context then that brings us into verse 6, where Moroni will teach us about the necessity of a trial of faith, saying, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Then in this chapter, Moroni will move into very specific teachings about faith. And of course, these are things that we will look at in detail during our reading of the text. Then something very interesting happens. Moroni uses his own story as a final scriptural example of faith, saying in verse 22 that it is by faith that my fathers have obtained the promise that these things should come unto their brethren through the Gentiles. And of course, these things are the record. Moroni is discussing the very same issue that Enos, the son of Jacob, spoke of in his great prayer with the Lord. So this leads Moroni to do something very unique before he closes his treatise on faith. And in fact, this is perhaps the most memorable feature of the entire chapter of Ether chapter 12. Moroni will inject a personal aside into his discourse on faith, and he'll describe an incredible two-part interaction that he had directly with the Lord Jesus Christ. Both parts of this interaction culminate in direct quotations from the Savior himself. And again, of course, we'll look at these in detail in our reading. But before doing this, I would like to consider the ramifications of the Lord's first response to Moroni in the passage for which Ether 12 is really best known. And this is when, in verse 25, Moroni expresses concern that the Gentiles will not receive his record in the way that he hopes. He tells the Lord, when we write, we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words. And I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. And remember, it is not an overstatement here to say that Moroni has dedicated his entire life to this outcome. He worries that the weakness in his writing will be a barrier to the latter day reader's acceptance of this record. However, the Lord offers this assurance to Moroni telling him something rather counterintuitive, that the inherent weakness in his record will be able to sift the wheat from the chaff in his readers. In other words, the weakness inherent in Moroni's record has a unique kind of utility. The record will appear for what it actually is to those who are meek enough to look past its imperfections. It will be plain and beautiful to those who avoid the fool's errand of fixating upon those imperfections and mocking them. My grace is sufficient for the meek that they shall take no advantage of your weakness, the Lord will tell Moroni in verse 26. And that might make us think of Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, verse 7, that tells us that it is the elect who hear the voice of the Lord through his prophets and harden not their hearts. So if this is the case, then this makes the Book of Mormon an instrument of gathering in a very unique way. Its imperfections actually become a tool of sifting and selecting. Then, when we do come to the magnificent teachings of verse 27, the Lord will speak more broadly uh, regarding the concept of weakness. In so doing, he will reveal another unique purpose in something that is ostensibly as undesirable as weakness— He will say, If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. Well, as we know from the past few chapters in the book of Ether, humility has been a rare commodity among the Jaredites. They have come to it, in fact, only after the scourge of famine and poisonous serpents. This has happened twice just recently in our readings. Well, this is typical of the pride cycle that we have seen in the book of Mormon more generally and humility ends up being the key that unlocks the gate to repentance. But it is a state of being that comes at a very high cost. It seems almost inevitable, in fact, in the Book of Mormon, that a state of prosperity will lead to pride and wickedness. And then, as we know, when that happens, the only way out of this cycle is through. Through a series of extrinsic calamities that motivate the people to repent, And so, is this the message of the pride cycle in the Book of Mormon, then, this inevitability? Well, in a way, yes, but there is more to it. The main message, I believe, is that humility is a non-negotiable for God. God will have a humble people, said President Benson in his famous pride talk. And in most cases, as Alma put it, God will compel us to be humble. That, unfortunately, is generally the way that his children arrive at that state. But there is another way to get humility, and that's what we're learning here in Ether chapter 12. Instead of being compelled, it is possible for us to be impelled. It is when we become humble through our own volition. This latter course, then, when we are impelled through our own internal motivation to be humble, can short-circuit the usual cycle of pride, allowing us to bypass the extrinsic measures that typically bring a prideful people, like the Jaredites at the end of Ether chapter 9, to their knees. It happens for us instead when we voluntarily go to our knees, when we call upon God and come unto his Son. Then we can attain unto humility in a much better way. No one addressed this process more clearly than Alma, Who spoke to the dispossessed Zoramites on the hill Oneida with his companion Amulek? In Alma chapter 32, verses 14 through 16, he said, And now, as I said unto you that because ye were compelled to be humble, ye were blessed, do ye not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word? Yea, he that truly humbleth himself, and repenteth of his sins, and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed yea, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble because of their exceeding poverty. Therefore, blessed are they who humble themselves without being compelled to be humble. Well, how exactly do we become humble on our own volition? What is it that leads to a sense of our truly fallen nature and our reliance upon a mediating God so that we can short-circuit this usual cycle of pride? Well, that seems to be what this teaching is all about in Ether chapter 12, verse 27, and the answer that it contains, again, is counterintuitive because, in a word, it is weakness. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness, the Savior told Moroni. Well, this sounds reasonable enough, I think, upon a superficial reading, but consider the ramifications for a moment. How does the Lord reward us when we come to him? Well, the answer in this verse is that he rewards us by showing us something. And so what is that something? Is it a vision of the heavenly city? Is it a taste of the tree of life? Is it a blissful future? Is it the vision of all things? Well, no. The Lord shows us something that we would actually rather not see. As Carl Jung once put it, that which we need the most will be found where we least want to look. It is painful to see our weakness, but voluntarily facing them with the faith that they can be a strength. And by the way, they become a strength either because they or you are transformed or because they should stay that way, like the weakness in Moroni's record, because that way they will continue to serve a counterintuitively positive purpose So when we voluntarily go before the Lord and discover our weakness, really we make a preemptory gesture of standing in our shame before God in that moment because we're subjecting our weakness to his gaze. But when we do so, through the merits and mercy of his Son, God can cover our weakness with the clothing of the atonement. Well, This is difficult to do in the here and now, but it is far preferable to the covering wished for by those unrepentant souls who someday will stand before God in their naked shame at the judgment bar, who will wish that the mountains could cover them, as Alma once put it. And so this is the process that is taught in this chapter. And of course, this is the miracle. So as we look at Ether chapter 12 from a high altitude perspective, We can see that this chapter teaches that, by faith, great miracles can and do occur in our lives. And again, many are cited in this chapter that we'll go through here in a moment. But perhaps the most notable among these miracles is the miracle of our weakness becoming a strength. I think weakness can be interpreted as a specific shortfall, uh, one that impedes our progress along a specific front, as with Moroni's writings when compared with the brother of Jared's great writings. Or, weakness can refer to the inability more broadly of fallen mortals to cross the insurmountable gulf that separates us from our heavenly goal. So, weakness can have both implications. So, how then can weakness become strength? Or, to quote Enos, when he wondered over the marvel of the forgiveness of his sins, he said, Lord, how is it done? Well, as this passage teaches, it is accomplished through an interdependent relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As he will tell Moroni in verse 27 My grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. I think we can say that when we submit to the Savior's yoke, then, by entering into a covenant relationship with him, We achieve true strength in this interdependence. This is true self-actualization. And this is because from this point forward, we are not a lone force in the universe against these vexing proximate shortcomings and this ultimately insurmountable gulf, again these two ways in which weakness manifests. Instead, by yoking ourselves to the Savior, we become a powerful composite unit with the Lord of this same universe. As President Ezra Taft Benson once put it, men and women who turn their lives over to God will find out that he can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. He will deepen their joys, expand their vision, quicken their minds, strengthen their muscles, lift their spirits, multiply their blessings, increase their opportunities, comfort their souls, raise up friends, and pour out peace. Whoever will lose his life to God Will find he has eternal life. Well, this, I think, is the Lord's message to Moroni in this episode at the end of Ether chapter 12. And of course, it is the Lord's message to us. Well, with those rather extended introductory thoughts, uh, let's move now into the chapter itself and first look at its structure before we move into a reading. This great towering chapter in the Book of Mormon that comes to us from the pen, or at least the engraving instrument of Moroni. Uh, this chapter where he thought he was giving his final farewell to readers, but uh, of course he is able later to give us the 10-chapter book of Moroni, which is so complementary to the teachings that we find in this chapter. Uh, but let's look at this chapter for a moment and appreciate its structure before we go into a reading of the text. I believe, by the way, that it is one of the greatest chapters in Scripture because it has a very unique way of bringing us to recognize and understand the merits and mercy and identity and intentions of Jesus the Christ. So Ether chapter 12 has 41 verses, and in the first section, in verses 1 through 5, Moroni recounts the prophecies of Ether, and it's here that we discover that Ether is something very different than a successor, or at least he's something far more, than a successor to the Jaredite kingly throne. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, we, we really would expect to move into this chapter and to read about his story and whether he regains the throne and, and brings the people out of captivity or not. But instead, we learn in this section that he was a prophet and a great prophet at that. So we'll find, in fact, that Ether cannot be restrained. He, he has to go forth and preach. He feels compelled or impelled, to use that word again. And it's here that he speaks of faith in verse 4 as an anchor to the soul. Well, the people disbelieve ether, uh, specifically again, because they saw these great and marvelous things not. They needed empirical evidence of his prophecies, which of course is uh, the same materialistic standard that we hold truth up today in our society instead of using the lens of faith. So this provides Moroni with the proper segue to go into his exposition on faith that we will really see in verses 6 through 22. Uh, So he introduces that in verse 6 by giving us this great verse that addresses the issue of the people seeing not the things that Ether is talking about, saying that you you shouldn't dispute because you don't see, uh, because you really don't receive a witness until after the trial of your faith. So believing Is seeing It runs counter to the, again, kind of the the post-Enlightenment scientific way in which we tend to see our world today. We've fallen into a trap in our modern era where we believe that the only reality is a materialistic reality, and Moroni is teaching us something else here. So in verses 7 through 9, this discourse on faith begins, and Moroni tells us that faith in Christ will lead to the receipt of the heavenly gift— so we'll read about that. Then in verse 10, he'll teach that faith preceded the priesthood callings of the ancients. A very interesting role of faith. Then he'll speak of the law of Moses in verse 11, saying that faith caused the fulfilling of the law of Moses. And we can remember that great moment, I believe it was in 3 Nephi 9, where the voice from the darkness, the Savior's voice, declared that in him the law had been fulfilled. Then Moroni will move into this sequence in verses 12 through 18, where he will explain that faith preceded the miracles that we read of in Scripture. The examples that he cites are Alma and Amulek, then Nephi and Lehi, and then later Ammon and his brethren. And then finally, he talks about faith preceding the miracles that took place in the ministry of the three disciples that we learned of in 3 Nephi chapter 28. Then Moroni will discuss something that's more recent in our memories as readers uh, in verses 19 through 21, saying that faith, and we could call it here, I think, the eye of faith, uh, a phrase that Alma once used in Alma chapter 5, but that faith caused many, including the brother of Jared, to overcome the veil. So that very singular incident that we learned of in Ether chapter 3, where the brother of Jared saw the finger of the Lord and then saw his entire person, uh, thus overcoming the veil. Very interestingly here, Moroni says that faith caused many to have this experience. and Of course, we come to learn later that Moroni was among those that had such an experience. Then he says in verse 22 that faith led to the promise that Moroni's record, these things, as he calls it in this verse, would come forth in the latter days. So in this long line of miracles uh, that he's talking about, these scriptural miracles, including uh, the brother of Jared's ability to overcome the veil, uh, there's also this miracle that this record that he is writing will someday come forth. So this is the final example that he cites. And of course, for him, it is a personal example. And so now this will be a segue into the final section in this chapter, where Moroni will provide us with this personal aside, and he will speak of this two-part interaction that he has with the Lord, and then at the end of the chapter he'll offer what he believed to have been his final farewell. So this first interaction can be found at the end of verse 23, extending through verse 28. And so in verses 23 through 25, we will find Moroni speaking to the Lord. He recounts what it is that he said to him, this concern that he expressed to him about his weakness in writing, particularly as compared to the writing of the brother of Jared. And then in verses 26 through 28, kind of in the manner of a section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord responds to Moroni, and we get the Lord's words directly, so they're given directly to us. And that, of course, is where he talks about weakness and the process of attaining humility by coming unto him. Then we will find the second interaction in verses 29 through 37. In verses 29 through 36, Moroni will ask the Lord to give grace. Now, the Lord had just mentioned grace in his response to Moroni's previous query. So Moroni builds upon that and asks the Lord to give grace to the Latter-day Gentiles. So he's still fixating upon these readers of his record in the Latter-days, asking that they might have charity In order to inherit the place which thou hast prepared. So he will specifically talk about this place that he has prepared. So we'll read all about that, of course. And then in verse 37, we get the Lord's response, uh, where the Lord directly answers Moroni's second query and where his words are given to us in scripture, just like with the Doctrine and Covenants section. And here Moroni is told that he personally will receive this inheritance that he has spoken of, this place that has been prepared. And he tells Moroni that if the Gentiles do not attain unto it, well, it will matter not unto Moroni. He is, uh, he is clear before the Lord. He's done all he can. His garments shall be made clean. So now we've come to the end of that interaction, and the final four verses of this chapter, verses 38 through 41, will give us Moroni's final farewell. And we will learn when we come into Moroni chapter 1 that he did indeed believe that this was his final farewell to the reader, and so it certainly reads like that. He talks about how he has seen Jesus face to face, and that tells us, of course, that he is among those many that he mentioned earlier that have overcome the veil and seen the Lord face to face. Then he commends readers to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written. So really, it's a very fitting farewell to the entire Book of Mormon, so much so, and we'll talk about this later, uh, it's something that Joseph and Hiram Smith read immediately prior to their death in the Carthage jail. Well, with that introduction and that flyover summary in place, let's now go to verse 1 for a reading of Ether chapter 12. Again, remembering that at the end of Ether chapter 11, this new character was introduced to us, this Ether who is a son of Corianter, who was a captive king, and who was the grandson of the wicked king Moron, who was ultimately brought into captivity by a descendant of the brother of Jared. This is what we know about Ether so far, and we expect to move into this chapter and learn about the way in which he either remains in captivity as the next Jaredite king, or whether he overcomes that captivity, as so many of his predecessors had. But instead, of course, we're about to learn that Ether had a very different mission in life. So, verse 1, let's learn more about Ether. And it came to pass that the days of Ether were in the days of Coriantumr, and Coriantumr was king over all the land. So, Coriantumr will be a very important character for us between now and the very end of the Book of Ether, and of course he is the one who was discovered by the Mulekites that we read of in the Book of Omni. Uh, but we can also see here that if Ether's grandfather, Moron, was brought into captivity by someone who was a direct descendant of the brother of Jared, we can guess that Coriantumr's is the son, or perhaps grandson, it could be either really, of this same character. And so Coriantumr is going to be the final king of this nation, and it, it appears that he would be a direct descendant of the brother of Jared. We're never told that explicitly, but we do know that the ruler who took the throne over from Ether's grandfather was indeed a direct descendant of the uh, brother of Jared. So kind of an interesting point as we consider who Coriantumr truly was. He's a troubled character, and we'll learn much more about him as we move along. But now we're going to go back and focus on Ether. So verse 2, and Ether was a prophet of the Lord. Well, there's the twist. There's where we discover that Ether's story is going to go in a very different direction than what we have read previously about other successors to the Jaredite throne. So verse two, and Ether was a prophet of the Lord. Wherefore Ether came forth in the days of Coriantumr and began to prophesy unto the people, for he could not be restrained because of the spirit of the Lord which was in him. So Ether is possessed by a very different desire than his predecessors. He is not interested, it appears, in taking the throne back from Coriantumr, but instead his role is to prophesy unto the people. In fact, he could not be restrained because of the Spirit of the Lord which was in him. Ogden and Skinner have written, Coriantumur was the last king and Ether the last of the Jaredite prophets. The Spirit was so strong in Ether that he could not hold back. He had to open his mouth and teach and correct the people. So also testified the prophet Jeremiah. The reception he was getting out in the streets of Jerusalem was too painful, so he wanted to quit proclaiming the word. but. His word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. I referenced that passage earlier, and it comes from Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. It's a notion and a teaching, I think, that any preacher of the gospel can relate with. Now, uh, continuing to learn more about Ether's prophetic ministry in verse 3, For he did cry from the morning, even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God and to repentance, lest they should be destroyed saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. Well, here's the launch point then into this discourse on faith, but the next verse is actually coming from Ether, not yet from Moroni. So the storytelling narrative ends here. We're done, uh, at least in this chapter, learning about Ether's story. We're now going to move in to these teachings with respect to faith. Before doing so, Dale LeBaron has written in his work called Ether and Mormon, Ether was a direct descendant of Jared. His grandfather Moron was overthrown as king of the Jaredites, and his father Coriantor spent all his days as a political prisoner. We do not know whether Ether's father was righteous, but the record does state that Aether's grandfather Moron and the three previous kings were wicked. Ether, the heir apparent to the Jaredite throne, was rejected by the people in power, and they even tried to kill him. So some additional background there as we consider who it is that Ether was. Now, let's again move back into his teachings, where we find that the thing that Ether was preaching to the people as he cried from sun up till sundown was that by faith all things are fulfilled. And then Moroni gives us this in verse 4. Here is what Ether taught in addition to that concept. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. Yea, even a place at the right hand of God. Now, how that concept would have resonated with Ether, how he would have hoped for a better world as he witnessed the wickedness that was around him, Moroni most certainly could relate. Which hope cometh of faith, this hope of a better world, cometh of faith and it maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. So that is what Ether taught the people, Moroni is giving us a summary of that, but those are Ether's teachings. Now, we will move in to Moroni's teachings after learning in verse 5 about the way in which the people received Ether's prophecies and teachings. This verse, verse 4, is such a beautiful standalone verse, and as I mentioned in the introduction, is one, I think, of three verses in Ether chapter 12 that really stand out as their own sermons. Uh, And so there's quite a lot of commentary available for this verse, First of all, this from McConkie, Millett, and Top, who speak about this phrase of a hope for a better world. They say, hoping for a better world should not be viewed as passively putting up with the problems and pains of this life, being fixated only on the next life. In fact, I I would just pause there because it reminds me of that great talk on Enduring to the End by Elder Neal Maxwell in the early 90s. We talked about how enduring it well is not simply uh, walking back and forth or, or pacing the cell of our circumstance, but instead it implies something more. So that's what they're saying here too. So to continue, McConkie, Millett, and Top say that um, hoping for a better world implies living in such a way that our hope for a better world can be to some degree realized in this life. Hope, like faith, implies action. Hoping for a better world will, of necessity, motivate us to love our fellow men and seek to eliminate, where possible, the suffering of our brothers and sisters around us. Hope will lead us to greater compassion and more merciful dealings with those around us. In this practical way, we can hope for a better world here and now. Then there's this beautiful phrase about faith becoming an anchor to the souls of men. And President Gordon B. Hinckley once taught, we live in a world of uncertainty For some, there will be great accomplishment. For others, disappointment. For some, much of rejoicing and gladness, good health and gracious living. For others, perhaps sickness and a measure of sorrow. We do not know. But one thing we do know, like the polar star in the heavens, regardless of what the future holds, there stands the Redeemer of the world, the Son of God, certain and sure as the anchor of our immortal lives. He is the rock of our salvation strength, our comfort, the very focus of our faith. And that comes from an April 2002 General Conference talk by President Hinckley. Finally, with respect to verse 4, Ogden and Skinner have written, In this chapter, Moroni highlighted the teachings of Ether. What do Ether and Moroni have in common? They were the last prophets of their civilizations. And interestingly, in their final instructions and warnings, they both focused on faith, hope, and charity in Jesus Christ. Of course, we'll see that later, beginning in Moroni chapter 7. The only way they could have a positive attitude in their lives is by following this course. Faith leads to hope, and hope is an anchor that makes people sure and steadfast, always doing good, and giving God the glory. Hope engenders a positive outlook and an upbeat attitude, even in times of personal adversity and social perversity. Hope is more than wishing. It is a twin sister of faith— an anticipation of the all-powerful redemption of Christ, which is manifested by a person's commitment to and demonstration of good works. Moroni speaks of hope with surety. Ether, Mormon, and Moroni are impressive models of hope even in the face of the gross corruption and despair that surrounded them. Now, verse 5, again, before Moroni moves into his discourse on faith, he will tell us how the people received Ether, saying, And it came to pass that Ether did prophesy great and marvelous things unto the people, which they did not believe, because they saw them not. Ogden and Skinner have written that Ether's people did not believe the great and marvelous things he taught, because they saw them not. They were blinded to spiritual things, not having an eye of faith. Again, that's a beautiful phrase uh, from Alma, chapter 5, verse 15, when he was speaking to the people of Zarahemla. So Ogden and Skinner say, these people did not have an eye of faith to view and comprehend matters of eternal consequence. So that sets up the problem that Moroni will now speak of as he takes over and pauses in the storytelling narrative and goes into this discourse on faith. He will talk about the way in which the people didn't receive Ether's teachings because they couldn't see them. And so that's the context for this great verse, uh, Ether chapter 12, verse 6, which says, and now." I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. So Moroni is always very clear about the points in which he interjects. So now we know that we're hearing from Moroni. I would speak somewhat concerning these things. And again, specifically meaning the way in which the people rejected ether because they saw these marvelous things not. Moroni continues I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Well, rather than extemporizing upon the meaning of this verse, which I did a little bit in the flyover summary, I'd like to submit to some beautiful pieces of commentary on this verse. First, this from Ogden and Skinner. Moroni commented further on Ether's teachings about faith, hope, and charity, saying, Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. We may not see God and His heavenly hand moving in the events of mortality, but we nevertheless trust that He is there, and we have confidence that He is guiding our lives. Just because we cannot see Him with our physical eye does not mean He is not alive and involved. We know our mortal vision is extremely limited. There is a wide spectrum of waves and rays all around us that our eyes, incredible instruments as they are, do not see. In spiritual matters, we see not with our eyes, but with our spirits. Our spirit, enhanced and quickened or accelerated by the Spirit of God, can see and understand far beyond any mortal capacity. Read carefully and learn in the following verses how the eyes of understanding or spiritual eyes are opened and greater things can be seen. And then they reference Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verse 12, and other verses in that section as well, where that great vision unfolded before Joseph Smith of the three kingdoms of glory. Then Ogden and Skinner continue by saying there is a spiritual realm, attempting to understand the things of God where our seeing comes not through the two little orbs in the top front of our heads, but through the spirit within us. The Holy Ghost can show us, spirit revealing to spirit, things that can be engraved into every fiber of our being, a spiritual witness that is far greater than the physical sight registered in a small portion of our cerebrum. By my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them those things which I has not seen. For they are only to be seen, and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows upon those who love him and purify themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves. And again that's Doctrine and Covenant Section seventy six, verses ten, and then verses 116 through 117. Ogden and Skinner continue, Exercising our faith comes first, then comes the ability to see through the veil. In the world generally, the saying is, seeing is believing. But in spiritual matters, the reverse is true. Believing is seeing. So, Moroni continued, Don't ever complain against God or shake a fist at heaven or argue against spiritual things just because the empirical method doesn't work to prove them for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith the testimony the sure witness of the spirit comes only after we are tested tried and proved not through the scientist's empirical methods but through the father's laboratory of testing called mortal probation this life is a test they must needs be chastened and tried doctrine of covenant section 101 verse 4 says My people, says the Lord, must be tried in all things. Doctrine and Covenants section 136 verse 31 says, God hath said that he would have a tried people. His blessings, his greatest blessings, the ultimate privileges of being sealed up to eternal life and enjoying the divine presence, come to a man when the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that the man is determined to serve him at all hazards, which is a quote from the prophet Joseph Smith. That's, a, I think, a wonderful, thought-provoking piece of commentary from Ogden and Skinner. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think it makes us think about the materialistic world that we live in today. While we do place great value on the scientific method and the way that it has of explaining and describing our material world, we would do well to remember that there is something beyond our material world. This thing that we call the scientific method falls grossly short in its apprehension of this world that lies beyond the material. That's certainly evidenced, I think, by recent um, descriptions of this concept called dark matter. Well, here's some more commentary on this remarkable verse of Ether 12, verse six, which causes us to think more broadly about this concept of a trial of faith uh, and how it is that we often associate a trial with hardships. Elder Richard G. Scott has taught, you can learn to use faith more effectively By applying this principle taught by Moroni faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Thus, every time you try your faith, that is, act in worthiness on an impression, you will receive the confirming evidence of the Spirit. Those feelings will fortify your faith. As you repeat that pattern, your faith will become stronger. So again, we often think of the word trial uh, as a hardship, but Elder Scott is teaching here that we need to uh, think of that term a little bit more broadly. It's simply a time when we are tested, when our faith is tested. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and I'm reading here from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, wrote of the various levels of faith we experience and the prerequisites for the expression of them. He said, preparatory faith is formed by experiences in the past, by the known, which provides a basis for belief. But redemptive faith must often be exercised towards experiences in the future, the unknown, which provides an opportunity for the miraculous. Exacting faith, mountain-moving faith, faith like that of the brother of Jared, precedes the miracle and the knowledge. He had to believe before God spoke. He had to act before the ability to complete that action was apparent. He had to commit to the complete experience in advance of even the first segment of its realization. Faith is to agree unconditionally and in advance to whatever conditions God may require in both the near and distant future. President Gordon B. Hinckley illustrated this principle of receiving our witness after the trial of faith. He said, let me give you a story of a woman in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She worked while going to school to provide for her family. I use her own words in telling this story. She says, quote, The university in which I studied had a regulation that prohibited the students that were in debt from taking tests. For this reason, when I received my salary, I would first separate the money for tithing and offerings, and the remainder was allotted for the payment of the school and other expenses. I remember a time when I faced serious financial difficulties. It was a Thursday when I received my salary. When I figured the monthly budget, I noticed that there wouldn't be enough to pay both my tithing and my university. I would have to choose between them. The bimonthly tests would start the following week, and if I didn't take them, I could lose the school year. I felt great agony. My heart ached. I had a painful decision before me, and I didn't know what to decide. I pondered between the two choices, to pay tithing or to risk the possibility of not obtaining the necessary credits to be approved in school. This feeling consumed my soul and remained with me up to Saturday. It was then that I remembered that when I was baptized, I had agreed to live the law of tithing. I had taken upon myself an obligation, not with the missionaries, but with my Heavenly Father. At that moment, the anguish started to disappear, giving place to a pleasant sensation of tranquility and determination. That night when I prayed, I asked the Lord to forgive me for my indecision. On Sunday, before the beginning of sacrament meeting, I contacted the bishop, and with great pleasure I paid my tithing and offerings. That was a special day. I felt happy and peaceful within myself and with Heavenly Father. The next day I was in my office. I tried to find a way to be able to take the tests that would begin on Wednesday. The more I thought, the further I felt from a solution. The working period was ending when my employer approached and gave the last orders of the day. When he had done so, with his briefcase in his hand, he bid farewell. Suddenly, he halted, and looking at me, he asked, How was your college? I was surprised, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The only thing I could answer, with a trembling voice, was, Everything is all right. He looked thoughtfully at me and bid farewell again. Suddenly, the secretary entered the room, saying that I was a very fortunate person. When I asked her why, she simply answered, The employer has just said that from today on the company is going to pay fully for your college and your books. Before you leave, stop at my desk and inform me of the costs so that tomorrow I can give you the check. After she left, crying and feeling very humble, I knelt exactly where I was and thanked the Lord for his generosity. I said to my Heavenly Father that he didn't have to bless me so much. I only needed the cost of one month's installment and the tithing I had paid on Sunday was very small compared to the amount I was receiving. During that prayer, the words recorded in Malachi came to my mind. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Up to that moment, I had never felt the magnitude of the promise contained in that scripture and that this commandment was truly a witness of the love that God our Heavenly Father gives to his children here on earth. Now, finally, this beautiful teaching from Elder Richard G. Scott in an April 2003 General Conference address called The Sustaining Power of Faith in Times of Uncertainty and Testing. He said, even if you exercise your strongest faith, God will not always reward you immediately according to your desires. Rather, God will respond with what in his eternal plan is best for you. He loves you to a depth and completeness you cannot conceive of in your mortal state. Indeed." Were you to know his entire plan, you would never ask for that which is contrary to it, even though your feelings tempt you to do so. Sincere faith gives understanding and strength to accept the will of our Heavenly Father when it differs from our own. We can accept his will with peace and assurance, confident that his infinite wisdom surpasses our own ability to comprehend fully his plan as it unfolds a piece at a time. Faith is not just push a button and you get the answer. The Lord declared, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Brigham Young observed, God never bestows upon his people or upon an individual superior blessings without a severe trial to prove them. God uses your faith to mold your character. Character is the manifestation of what you are becoming. Strong moral character results from consistent correct choices in the trials and testing of life. Your faith can guide you to those correct choices. Well now, returning to the text and moving into verse 7, Moroni will continue with this discourse on faith. He'll talk specifically in verses 7 through 9 about the heavenly gift and how faith in Christ leads to the receipt of this heavenly gift. So verse 7, for it was by faith that Christ showed himself unto our fathers after he had risen from the dead. And he showed not himself unto them until after they had faith in him. Wherefore, it must needs be that some had faith in him, for he showed himself not unto the world. So there's a limited number of people that saw him in this manner. In other words, some had faith in him. He didn't show himself unto the world. And of course, we read of this in 3 Nephi in great detail, and we additionally have the accounts that are given to us in the New Testament of the way it was in which people, some people, that is, were able to see the Savior after he rose from the dead. Verse 8, But because of the faith of men, he has shown himself unto the world, and glorified the name of the Father, and prepared a way that thereby others might be partakers of the heavenly gift, that they might hope for those things which they have not seen. So here we're learning that there is a way, and that way has been prepared for all. This is the marvel, I think, of the message of Jesus Christ. Not only was he as great as the scriptures purport, but but he did what he did for each of us individually and prepared a way for each of us individually. Verse nine, wherefore ye may also have hope and be partakers of the gift if ye will but have faith. Then Moroni teaches us this in verse 10 about faith that it preceded the priesthood callings of the ancients. He says, behold, it was by faith that they of old were called after the holy order of God. That term holy order is most certainly tantamount with priesthood of God. McConkie, Millet, and Top have taught, The heavenly gift of which Moroni speaks is the forgiveness of sins, the companionship of the Holy Ghost, and the accompanying gifts of the Spirit that are bestowed upon the just and faithful saints of God. The Apostle Peter spoke of this gift as the divine nature in 2 Peter 1, verse 4, that through the atoning grace of Christ swallows up the natural man. Through faith and acceptance of Christ's atoning plan of mercy, People can be cleansed of iniquity, transformed into new creatures. During the golden era of the Nephite Zion society, the people partook of the heavenly gift, which produced a society free from contention and disputation, injustices and inequities, lasciviousness and crime. From the words and examples of faith of these holy men of God, as found in the scriptures, Moroni desires that others may also come to have that kind of faith and hope, and thereby partake of this heavenly gift. Now Moroni will tell us in verse 11 that faith played a critical role in the fulfilling of the law of Moses. He says, wherefore by faith was the law of Moses given, but in the gift of his son, God hath prepared a more excellent way, and it is by faith that it hath been fulfilled. This beautiful phrase, a more excellent way, was used by Paul, in fact, in First Corinthians chapter 12 verse 31, where he said, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet shew I unto you a more excellent way. Coming back to this concept of the fulfilling of the law of Moses, Edward J. Brandt has written, and this was in a Sperry Symposium uh, on the Old Testament, he has written this in a work called The Law of Moses and the Law of Christ. And this, by the way, can be found in Thomas R. Valletta's Book of Mormon Study Guide. In fact, Valletta begins this by saying that the whole purpose of the law of Moses was to bring the people to Christ, who is the more excellent way. Then this quote from Brandt begins here, where he says the Doctrine and Covenants says that the law of Moses consists of the preparatory gospel and the law of carnal commandments. The preparatory gospel includes the elements of faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, and baptism. We are counseled to come unto Christ, which ultimately means to become Christ-like. The Lord has established a path to help us achieve that end. There are many significant steps along the way, all centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon teaches of the full spirit of all of these laws that were revealed. In 2 Nephi 11, verse 4, we read, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. Notice, Brandt continues, how Nephi reminds them that everything involved in the practices of the law of Moses, as he identified it, was associated with Christ, and it was done with the intent to bring them to Christ. In 2 Nephi is recorded, and this is 2 Nephi chapter 25, verses 24-27, through 27, and notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses, and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ, until the law shall be fulfilled." For for this end was the law given, wherefore the law hath become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith, yet we keep the law because of the commandments. And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Wherefore we speak concerning the law that our children may know the deadness of the law, And they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward unto that life which is in Christ and know for what end the law was given, or that they may look for what end the law was given, all to focus on Christ. And after the law is fulfilled in Christ, they need not harden their hearts against him when the law ought to be done away. Now, Brandt continues, why was the law of carnal commandments given? It was added because of transgressions. To what was it added? to the preparatory gospel. And what was the purpose of the added law of carnal commandments? To teach the children of Israel how to repent so they could increase the spirit in their lives to become more focused and come unto Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 24, Paul makes a great statement in which he describes the law as a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The Joseph Smith translation adds a very significant change. It says the law was our schoolmaster until Christ. The law was not just to bring us to Christ, but a schoolmaster till Christ came, and then it was fulfilled. So, some wonderful insight there. Now we move back into the text and come to verse 12, where Moroni will now discuss the way in which faith preceded the miracles of Scripture, and that includes Alma and Amulek and Nephi and Lehi and Ammon and his brethren and the three Nephite disciples. So, we'll read about each of those there, then we'll go into the brother of Jared account, and finally we'll come to the way in which Moroni himself figures into the story. So verse 12, For if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. Wherefore, he showed not himself until after their faith. So there very clearly is the order of faith and miracles. One precedes the other. Ogden and Skinner have written, Faith precedes the priesthood, the power. Faith precedes the saving grace. Faith precedes the miracle. Of course, President Spencer W. Kimball wrote extensively on that concept. Verse 13, Behold, it was the faith of Alma and Amulek that caused the prison to tumble to the earth. Behold, it was the faith of Nephi and Lehi that wrought the change upon the Lamanites, that they were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And of course, there was also a prison that tumbled to the earth in the case of Nephi and Lehi. We can add that. So when we look back upon those miraculous incidents, Uh, That we have read of in the Book of Mormon narrative and in in Mormon's abridgment, the father of this writer, Moroni, we can see that the cause was faith. Verse 15 Behold, it was the faith of Ammon and his brethren which wrought so great a miracle among the Lamanites. Uh, What a wonderful retrospective this is as we consider all that we have taken in in our reading of this record. That was a, a most memorable account. Uh, when we read of the way that Ammon met Lamoni, and of course as his brother met the great king and uh, their conversion. Verse 16, And yea, even all they who wrought miracles wrought them by faith, even those who were before Christ and also those who were after. So it's not just Alma and Amulek. It's not just Nephi and Lehi. It is all they who wrought miracles. They wrought them by faith. Verse 17, And it was by faith that the three disciples obtained a promise that they should not taste of death. And they obtained not the promise until after their faith. So we read about that, of course, in 3 Nephi chapter 28, and we marveled over the blessing that was given to these three unnamed disciples. Verse 18, And neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith, wherefore they first believed in the Son of God. Elder Theodore Tuttle once wrote in a 1975 October conference address I believe there are basically two kinds of faith the kind of which I have spoken faith that God lives and rules in the heavens sustains us in life's challenges it enables us to endure without yielding and bear the trials common to us all there is another kind of faith more powerful less known infrequently observed This faith in God compounds our ability to accomplish our righteous desires. It is the creative and generative kind of faith. This is the faith save for the exercise of which things would not happen. This is the great causative force in human lives. The Lord's ability to help us succeed is limited only by our faith in him. Now, Moroni will discuss the brother of Jared and others who had a similar experience. And again, at the end of this chapter, we'll learn that he is among those who had a similar experience. So verse 19, And there were many whose faith was so exceedingly strong, even before Christ came, who could not be kept from within the veil, but truly saw with their eyes the things which they had beheld with an eye of faith, and they were glad. Well, there's that phrase, the eye of faith. And uh, earlier we talked about Alma's use of that term in Alma chapter 5. Verse 20, And behold, we have seen in this record that one of these was the brother of Jared, So that was such a singular account as we read about the way in which the brother of Jared overcame the veil, or as verse 19 just said, could not be kept from within the veil. But it's here that we learn in no uncertain terms that there are others who had a similar experience. For so great, Moroni continues, was his faith in God, that when God put forth his finger he could not hide it from the sight of the brother of Jared, because of his word which he had spoken unto him, which word he had obtained by faith." And after the brother of Jared had beheld the finger of the Lord, because of the promise which the brother of Jared had obtained by faith, the Lord could not withhold anything from his sight. Wherefore, he showed him all things, for he could no longer be kept without the veil. And of course, that is how the story progressed in Ether chapter 3. He was shown the Lord in his entirety, and then he was given this great vision of all things. Then we read about the way in which he was commanded to write all of that at the end of Ether chapter 3, and then that was discussed in detail by Moroni in Ether chapter 4. So the brother of Jared could no longer be kept without the veil because of his faith, and he was shown all things. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written in his book, Christ and the New Covenant, with respect to the brother of Jared, one is inclined to say that surely God could block such an experience if he wished to, meaning the experience of the brother of Jared. But the text suggests otherwise. This man could not be kept from within the veil, This may be an unprecedented case of a mortal man's desire, will, and purity so closely approaching the heavenly standard that God could not but honor his devotion. Given such faith, we should not be surprised that the Lord would show him visions that would be relevant to the mission of all the Book of Mormon prophets and to the events of the latter-day dispensation. Additionally, Elder Bruce Hafen has written this in his book, The Believing Heart, One of the clearest yet at times most perplexing themes in the history of God's dealings with mankind involves his decision to draw a veil between our world of mortality and his world of the eternities. Not only does the veil keep us from remembering our premortal past, it also keeps us from seeing many things that are presently taking place. For God, his angels, and their activities are hidden from our sight. He has rarely parted that veil in his dealings with his children on the earth. It can become very thin at times, but for most of us, the veil remains, for he has placed it there to help us learn how we must live, what we must become, in order to live with him someday. Well, now that Moroni has moved through these scriptural characters and discussed their faith and the miracles that uh, characterize their missions, he comes to his own in verse 22. And his mission, of course, is to compile this record to abridge the record of the Jaredites, to take care of and actually add to the record of his father Mormon, and then ultimately, although at this point it's unbeknownst to him, add his own book called the Book of Moroni. So his role will be to bring all of this together, and as we know, he will then hide it up, and it will later be found in this very dispensation that we live in. And of course, we know about the the post-mortal Moroni and his interactions with the boy prophet Joseph Smith. As we can only imagine, and this is very important to the story moving forward here as we come through Ether chapter 12, uh, this would have been an all-consuming desire for Moroni, that he could be successful in this venture, and then, when this record was out of his hands and he had completed his ministry on the earth, that at a future time this record would successfully come forth and reach his intended audience, he wanted this very much. This was also a desire that was expressed by Enos in his prayer and other prophets that we've read of through the Book of Mormon. So this is undoubtedly what is in Moroni's mind and heart as he is bringing this record together. He's told us about the way that faith has facilitated these other miracles that he's spoken of that can be found in scripture. And now he's going to tell us about the faith that precedes the miracle of this record finally getting into the hands of the Gentiles. And more specifically, as we'll see in this verse, the faith that preceded the promise that Moroni received from the Lord, that indeed that outcome would later be realized. So all of that is at play as he brings this story to the present and speaks of himself in verse 22 and says, And it is by faith that my fathers have obtained the promise that these things should come unto their brethren through the Gentiles. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says that Ether chapter 12, verses 8 through 22, is filled with examples of wonders and marvels done by faith. The lectures on faith explain that faith is the principle of power to do miracles. Faith is not only the principle of action, it says, but of power also in all intelligent beings, whether in heaven or on earth. It was by faith that the worlds were framed. God spake, chaos heard, And worlds came into order by reason of the faith there was in him. So with man also, he spake by faith in the name of God, and the sun stood still. The moon obeyed, mountains removed, prisons fell, lions' mouths were closed, the human heart lost its enmity, fire its violence, armies their power, the sword its terror, and death its dominion, and all this by reason of the faith which was in him. Now, Ogden and Skinner point out the similarity between what Moroni has done here in this chapter and what the author of the Hebrews, or of Hebrews, did in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, where he talked about the miracles of Scripture, and he referred to these witnesses to Jesus Christ as a cloud of witnesses. Uh, They say this, Moroni made a list of some of the best examples of faith from the ancient Americas. Similar to Paul's list of the best examples from the ancient biblical world recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, Moroni said there were many who had the eye of faith and could not be kept from within the veil. They saw glorious things. This really brings Moroni's discourse on faith to a close, although he will later give us more insight into his own experiences in penetrating the veil, and will say a little bit more about the brother of Jared and the, the power of his writings and also the way in which he was able to move mountains. But uh, by and large, this chapter is now going to take a turn, and we're going to read, before he gives us his final farewell in the final four verses of this uh, chapter, Moroni is going to give us this account of this experience that he had with the Lord Jesus Christ and how he spoke to him and how the Lord spoke back, and we get the words of the Savior directly in these verses. So this is the final section, then, we might say, of the book of Ether, chapter 12, accepting that farewell that we'll read of in the final four verses. So now that Moroni is on the subject of this record coming forth to the Gentiles, and we have a sense for just how critical that is to him, and how important that is to his mission and ministry, we now come into this subject where he speaks to the Lord about his concerns that the weakness inherent in the record will prevent it from uh, fulfilling its desired purpose. So he says this at the end of verse 22, Therefore the Lord hath commanded me, yea, even Jesus Christ. Meaning that Jesus Christ has commanded Moroni to play his part in bringing this record forth unto the Gentiles. So then Moroni says this to the Lord in verse 23 And I said unto him, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. For, Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith, but thou hast not made us mighty in writing. So Moroni was clearly a powerful speaker, but felt that his writing did not reflect that same power. However, I think it's accurate to say that Moroni isn't just referring to himself here. He's referring to the record in general. We might remember how at the end of Mormon uh, chapter 9, he talked about the limitations of language that he was subject to there. We get the impression that he wished that he could have written in Hebrew, but the the limitations of the plates precluded him from doing so, so he used reformed Egyptian. Then as we come into his abridgment of the 24 Jaredite plates and we learn about the vision of the brother of Jared and his writings— We wonder if they had the pure language of Adam, and then if that is the case, Moroni would have had an awareness even further of the weakness in his own writings and in the weakness of the record. Uh, And specifically what we're talking about here is the inability, the limitations of language to truly transmit the spiritual concepts that are meant to be transmitted through Scripture. That, of course, is really the task of Scripture. It is to be a conduit for revelation. Its writings can be understood on their face, and they should be, but we also open ourselves up to heavenly communication as we read them. And what the Lord is about to teach Moroni is that that process can still take place with this record, even though it has the limitations and weakness that Moroni is describing. Then Moroni finishes this comment to the Lord by saying, For thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them. Again, it's the Holy Ghost that giveth utterance. And we know from other passages of Scripture, we might think of uh, the 50th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, for example. When we find that if a preacher preaches by the Spirit and the receiver receives by the Spirit, then there is a level of spiritual communication that's taking place between the receiver and the Lord. It's a pattern of revelation. And so in that sense, the preacher simply became a facilitator or a conduit. And really, that's what Scripture can be, too, And that's what the Lord is teaching Moroni here. Verse 24, And thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. So here he refers to hands. Earlier in the Book of Mormon, he referred to the limitation of his language. Behold, thou hast not made us mighty in writing, like unto the brother of Jared. So there's that comparison now that he has experienced the wonder of the writings of the brother of Jared. And he says, For thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty even as thou art, unto the overpowering of man to read them. So that's uh, really kind of tantalizing to us, too, because that is precisely the part of the Book of Mormon that we currently do not have access to. We have access to the part that Moroni is talking about here that is fraught with weakness. Uh, It won't be until later. Bruce R. says it will be a millennial time when we have the privilege of reading the brother of Jared's writings. Then Moroni says in verse 25, Thou hast also made our words powerful and great, even that we cannot write them. So we came upon this idea in 3 Nephi, of course, too, when some of the things that the Savior was saying and teaching were so transcendent that human language at that time had an inability to transmit what it was that was taking place. So what I think we can see here is that Moroni uh, is consumed with a sincere desire that the record would come forth to the Gentiles, and that they, too, would sense the powerful and great things which these prophets have seen and which they are trying to transmit to modern-day readers. But the limitations of written language might preclude this from happening. So we know well that that language does have its limitations in transmitting spiritual concepts. John the Revelator uh, used symbols largely to um, describe his great vision of all things. And of course we know, and in fact the book of Revelation has a lot of allusions to music, but we know that music has a very interesting way of transmitting spiritual truths in ways that written language cannot. So it has its limitations, and that's what Moroni is keying in on here and is concerned with. He wants this record to contain all that it should when it comes forth to the latter days. And so then he says this to the Lord. He expresses this very specific concern. Wherefore, when we write, we behold our weakness. In other words, we understand the disparity between the powerful and great spiritual truths that we're trying to transmit And the inability of language to transmit them. And he says, When we write, we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words. And I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. Now, whenever I think of that phrase, maybe I shouldn't, but I think of a time when Mark Twain poked fun at the Book of Mormon. He once said, The Book of Mormon, engraved upon metal plates, was dug up out of the ground in some out of the way corner of Canada by Joseph Smith. A man of no repute and of no authority. And upon this extravagantly doubtful document, the Mormon church was built, and upon it stands today and flourishes. On another occasion, he said, all men have heard of the Mormon Bible, but few have taken the trouble to read it. And then he says, the book is a curiosity to me. It is such a pretentious affair, and yet so slow, so sleepy. Well, we'll say more about mocking in just a moment. Um... But I've always found that to be an interesting example of someone who is such a great author in his own right, but who really had no idea what it was that he was mocking. Elder Neal a. Maxwell has spoken about this. He's talked about this fear that Moroni had, that the Gentiles might mock at these words, and about some who indeed have taken the bait and uh, made that fatal mistake. He says, Science will not be able to prove or disprove holy writ. However, enough plausible evidence will come forth to prevent scoffers from having a filled day, but not enough to remove the requirement of faith. Writers and editors of the Book of Mormon repeatedly indicated the selectivity used in choosing, under the inspiration of heaven, what to include in that precious volume. It is understandable that some scholars would like even more contextual material about the life, times, and culture of the peoples in the Book of Mormon. Yet such attending history is not the purpose for which the book has been brought forward. The caveats and counsel of its authors and editors become very apparent. Conscious of their own imperfections, they indicated no less than four times their concern, lest their central message be obscured by their imperfections, says Elder Maxwell. Such careful and concerned preparation should be matched by careful and thoughtful reading. The concluding lines of the title page of the Book of Mormon read, and now, if there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God, that ye may be found spotless at the judgment seat of Christ. Likewise, we read these comments. If there be faults, they be the faults of a man. But behold, we know no fault. Nevertheless, God knoweth all things. Therefore, he that condemneth, let him be aware, lest he shall be in danger of hell fire. "'Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, "'neither my Father, because of his imperfection,' Moroni says in Mormon chapter 9, "'neither them who have written before him, "'but rather give thanks unto God "'that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, "'that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been.'" And then Elder Maxwell quotes Moroni in the verses that we've just read, "'Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things "'because of our weakness in writing. "'For, Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith.'" But thou hast not made us mighty in writing, for thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them. These concerns, says Elder Maxwell, are noted not because of any array of imperfections in the Book of Mormon, but rather to show the conscientiousness of the dedicated writers and editors who, with blood, sweat, and tears, bequeathed the Book of Mormon to all mankind. So Elder Maxwell addresses something important at the end of that, I think, uh, because as we read this, we think, well, what are these imperfections? What is this weakness? We know how glorious the Book of Mormon is and and what a pure conduit it really is to an understanding of the identity and the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which we can communicate with heaven. So what is this weakness? Well, again, perhaps three things. Moroni talked about the limitations of the Reformed Egyptian that was used to write it. Uh, and differentiates between that and Hebrew, and he also differentiates between his writing and the language and writing of the brother of Jared. Another is the limitation of any written language to transmit the heavenly things that he wants the Gentiles to receive, and he wants this record to facilitate that. And then thirdly, we're learning here from Elder Maxwell that this reference to weakness is really a reflection of the conscientious nature of, of its writers and their fervent desire, as as reflected so beautifully by Enos once again, uh, by their by their fervent desire that this record would come forth uh, in the latter days and fulfill its purpose. Well what the Lord will now teach Moroni is that the Book of Mormon will indeed fulfill its purpose and amazingly whatever weakness is inherent in it, this same weakness that Moroni is talking about here, will actually be an advantage because it, as I mentioned in the introduction to this chapter, will serve as a sifting tool. It will weed out the meek. It will separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who think to mock it instead of considering what it is that it is actually bringing mankind, and I hope that ultimately Mark Twain will take a different attitude towards the Book of Mormon, but those who do mock it in such a manner, the Lord calls them fools. So in verse 26, he answers Moroni by saying, And when I had said this, the Lord spake unto me, saying, Fools mock, but they shall mourn. And my grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. So it's direct and strong language from the Lord, and it's memorable. Fools mock, but they shall mourn. We can take that to mean that those like Mark Twain and others who have mocked the Book of Mormon will ultimately mourn that they had railed against something so miraculous and marvelous and, and so heavenly. But there is another message here, and I just mentioned it again and mentioned it in the introduction, and that is that those who will ultimately mourn are those who were tripped up by the weakness that is inherent in the book. Uh, it's those who did not see it for what it was, and, and the, the reason they did not is because they were not meek. So his grace is sufficient, but who is it sufficient for? The meek. So the Book of Mormon, warts and all, although I would hasten to add, as Elder Maxwell did too, that you can't find many, uh, is a sifter and a selection tool for those who are willing to hear my voice and harden not their hearts, the meek. So in that sense, the weakness in this record that Moroni is talking about will actually be a tool that has great utility in the gathering of Israel in the latter days. Ogden and Skinner have written, Moroni was worried about the reaction of later peoples to his weak writing skills. He felt that he was ineffective at verbalizing or expressing in proper grammatical syntax the powerful words and teachings the Lord gave him, and he succumbed to the common mortal inclination to compare his abilities with others. Comparison is the root of all inferiority. Moroni lamented that he could not even come near the ability of the brother of Jared to create mighty writings unto the overpowering of man to read them. The Lord reassured Moroni, confirming that fools will indeed mock, but the humble followers of Christ will not be concerned with any weakness in writing. Through the Holy Spirit, they will be accepting of the life changing messages. Then the Lord tells Moroni this in verse 27, uh, as if to say, since we're talking about the weakness in this record, And now that I've told you that it will actually have utility, let me speak of the concept of weakness more broadly. So now he does this in verse 27, saying, and if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Ogden and Skinner have written, This is one of the most magnificent single-verse sermons in all of Scripture. We learn the origin and purpose of weaknesses and how to overcome them. Weaknesses make us stronger because they bring our pride down to a level where we must look up. Paul once wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7-10, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, and in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak in the things of the world... Then am I strong in the things of the Spirit, and in the things of the world, and in the things of the Spirit are bracketed additions by Ogden and Skinner in that great uh, passage by Paul. Then they continue by saying, all of us have weaknesses in our fallen condition. Notice here, too, that Ogden and Skinner are using the word weaknesses in the plural, which is often the way that we read Ether chapter 12, verse 27, and often the way that we refer to it, but the word weakness sits in singular in that verse. However, in the way that Ogden and Skinner are using it here, it's most appropriate for them to use the pluralized form of the word weakness. So they say, all of us have weaknesses in our fallen condition. We are each given a thorn in the flesh to make us humble. And if we allow the humility to work in us properly, we can make the weaknesses our strengths. We can actually become strong, even powerful, but the power does not originate in us. Paul wrote, I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In and of ourselves, we are nothing. We are totally dependent upon the Lord. He is our strength. The Lord has said, the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones. This is in the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants in section one, verse 19 and then verse 23. That the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple. He that is weak It says in Doctrine and Covenants section 50 verse 16, Among you hereafter shall be made strong. And then finally Doctrine and Covenants section 133 verse 59 says, By the weak things of the earth the Lord shall thrash the nations. As we learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery, we will overcome the weaknesses that God granted us and be made perfect in weakness, and have the power of Christ rest upon us, Besides the Apostle Paul, other great prophet teachers have taught the purpose and potential good that may come from our weaknesses. Jacob said in Jacob chapter 4, verse 7, The Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace that we have power to do these things. I would add there, too, that just remember this Jacob is someone who predated the coming of Christ, and therefore he was living under the law of Moses. And look at the great insight he has into accessing the grace of Jesus Christ as a practitioner of the law of Moses. That tells us a lot about the true spiritual stature and understanding of these Old Testament-era prophets. Ammon said in Alma chapter 26, verse 12, I know that I am nothing as to my strength, I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God, for in his strength I can do all things. Then Moroni said, and he will later say in Moroni chapter 10, verse 32, If ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. Thus, say Ogden and Skinner, the atonement of Christ redeems the faithful from two kinds of weakness. The first is the natural result of the fall, the overarching, pervasive weakness of the natural, fallen, unregenerate man. The second kind comprises individual frailties and challenges. So I would add, and I kind of intimated this in the introduction, that the, the latter type of weakness is, is the segue into this verse. It's it's what Moroni is talking about, this uh, individual frailty and challenge that's getting in the way of a perfect outcome of a record that contains no imperfections. Uh, but then there's the other type of weakness, which is the weakness incident to the fall of Adam. Uh, that, puts a a gulf between us and our heavenly destination that can really only be surmounted through the merits and mercy of Jesus Christ. Well, as one might imagine, there's a great deal more commentary available on this verse, and I'd like to read quite a bit of it here. Here's something that Elder David A. Bednar once wrote about um, the way in which the Lord might want to show us our weakness. He says, when we read in the scriptures of man's weakness— This term includes the weakness inherent in the general human condition in which the flesh has such an incessant or constant impact upon the spirit. And weakness likewise includes, however, our specific individual weaknesses, which we are expected to overcome. So there are those two meanings of weakness once again. Life has a way of exposing these weaknesses. Whereas Satan would have us avoid facing our faults so that we may appear better than we really are, The Lord requires us to acknowledge our faults so that we may actually become better. What I'd like to read now comes from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. It's an extended piece of commentary that discusses weakness, humility, and then grace. So first, these comments on weakness. It says, Weakness comes to men and women through the fall of Adam. The physical body and mind is susceptible to disease and decay. We are subject to temptation and struggle. Each of us experiences personal weaknesses. Nevertheless, the Lord clearly teaches that as we come unto him in humility and faith, he will help us turn weakness into strength. His grace is sufficient to make this transformation by lifting us above our own natural abilities. In a very personal way, we experience how the power of the atonement overcomes the effect of the fall. Elder Neal a. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles spoke of how the Lord can help us overcome our weaknesses. He said, when we read in the scriptures of man's weakness, this term includes the generic but necessary weakness inherent in the general human condition in which the flesh has such an incessant impact upon the spirit. Weakness likewise includes, however, our specific individual weaknesses, which we are expected to overcome. Life has a way of exposing these weaknesses. And that, of course, uh, is what Elder Bednar just quoted a moment ago. Furthermore, Elder Maxwell described how recognizing our weaknesses is one way that the Lord has chosen to increase our learning. He said, When we are unduly impatient with an omniscient God's timing, we really are suggesting that we know what is best. Strange, isn't it? We who wear wristwatches seek to counsel Him who oversees cosmic clocks and calendars. Because God wants us to come home after having become more like Him and His Son, part of this developmental process of necessity consists of showing unto us our weaknesses. Hence, if we have ultimate hope, we will be submissive, because with his help those weaknesses can even become strengths. It is not an easy thing, however, to be shown one's weaknesses, as these are regularly demonstrated by life's circumstances. Nevertheless, this is part of coming unto Christ, and it is a vital, if painful, part of God's plan of happiness. The scriptures testify that Jesus Christ can save us from our inadequacies as well as our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Jacob chapter 4 verse 7, the Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace that we have power to do these things. Alma chapter 26, verse 12, I know that I am nothing, as to my strength I am weak. Therefore I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God, for in his strength I can do all things. And then Moroni chapter 10, verse 32, and these are all the references that Ogden and Skinner shared with us as well. If ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. Now the Institute Manual will move to the concept of humility. It says, Moroni taught that not only must we exercise faith in the Lord, but we must humble ourselves as well. The book True to the Faith explains the meaning of true humility. It says to be humble is to recognize gratefully your dependence on the Lord to understand that you have constant need for his support. Humility is an acknowledgment that your talents and abilities are gifts from God. It is not a sign of weakness, timidity, or fear. It is an indication that you know where your true strength lies. I think, of course, we can think about the way that the Savior interacted with his detractors. He certainly was not timid or weak. He didn't show fear, but at the same time, he was truly humble. Now, uh, the Institute Manual teaches about grace. And before I move into that, I'd like to read this from Elder Richard G. Scott, who said, Humility is that quality that permits us to be taught from on high, through the Spirit, or to be taught from sources whose origin was inspiration from the Lord, such as the scriptures and the comments of the prophets. Humility is the precious, fertile soil of righteous character. In it, the seeds of personal growth germinate. When cultivated through the exercise of faith, pruned by repentance and fortified by obedience and good works. Such seeds produce the cherished fruit of spiritual direction. Divine inspiration and power then result. Inspiration to know the will of the Lord, power to provide the ability to accomplish that inspired will. That again is from Elder Richard G. Scott. Now coming back to the Book of Mormon Institute manual, as it has spoken of weakness and then of humility and then of grace, we move into the grace portion of this commentary. And it says in Guide to the Scriptures, we read that grace is the enabling power from God that allows men and women to obtain blessings in this life and to gain eternal life and exaltation after they have exercised faith, repented, and given their best effort to keep the commandments. Such divine help or strength is given through the mercy and love of God. President Thomas S. Monson gave the following words of comfort. Should there be anyone who feels he is too weak to change the onward and downward course of his life, or should there be those who fail to resolve to do better because of that greatest of fears, the fear of failure, there is no more comforting assurance to be had than the words of the Lord My grace, said he, is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Now, the Lord, in verse 28, Moves into a, a related topic, saying, "Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness, and I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the fountain of all righteousness." So now Moroni will discuss this concept of faith, hope, and charity, their interaction, and he will speak specifically of of this place that has been prepared, and he will talk about how charity is requisite to the attainment of that place, and ultimately. Talk about his wish that the Gentiles will have such charity. So that's what he's going to do in the next verses, in verses 29 through 36. And now I, Moroni, having heard these words, was comforted and said, O Lord, thy righteous will be done, for I know that thou workest unto the children of men according to their faith. So we have just taken in so much by reading this interaction between Moroni and the Lord and getting the Lord's response in verses 26 and 27. There's so much to say about those verses. And now think about what it would have been like for Moroni to have received these words from the Lord uh, at this time. And so that's his response. Uh, He's comforted, and he says, thy righteous will be done. In other words, I accept the idea that this record may have weakness in it, and I now see that this weakness will be a strength because it will be, a way to identify the meek. I also see that weaknesses, more generally, can be turned into strengths, either because the weakness itself is an asset that is counterintuitively used by the Lord, or it is a strength that will be overcome when one yokes themselves to Christ through covenant and improves their own personal character, and of course, ultimately, crosses that gulf that is imposed upon us by the fall of Adam. So Moroni is saying all of this, and then he's saying, I know that thou workest unto the children of men according to their faith. Now, this is his opportunity to come back in to the topic of faith for just a moment and to say this about the brother of Jared in verse 30. For the brother of Jared said unto the mountain, Zarin, remove, and it was removed. And if he had not faith, it would not have moved. Therefore thou workest after men have faith. So Moroni is reinforcing this teaching from his discourse on faith, but the context here is different because here he is speaking to the Lord. This also just causes us to admire the brother of Jared just a little bit more because we get this additional detail about his ministry. Ogden and Skinner have said, Our spiritual attainments in this life are directly proportional to our faith or our lack thereof. Moroni attested, I know that thou workest unto the children of men according to their faith wherefore thou workest after men have faith. So there's an order to that. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie once wrote in The Mortal Messiah, uh, the Savior compared such faith to a person with a faith the size of a mustard seed. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, was the Savior using the brother of Jared to illustrate what great things we can do with our faith? Now, I misspoke, actually, that's a question that's posed by Thomas R. Valletta in his Book of Mormon study guide, and now here, He quotes Bruce R. McConkie in answering that question. Elder McConkie says, Faith is power. By faith the worlds were made. Nothing is impossible to those who have faith. If the earth itself came rolling into existence by faith, surely a mere mountain can be removed by that same power. The idea of a faith that can move mountains is not exclusive to the brother of Jared. Enoch was known to have done the same. The Book of Mormon prophet Jacob refers to a faith that becometh unshaken insomuch that we can command in the name of Jesus and the very trees obey us or the mountains or the ways of the sea. Nephi in Helaman chapter 10, uh, and actually this is the Lord speaking to Nephi when he says, if ye shall say unto this mountain, be thou cast down and become smooth, it shall be done. So this idea of mountains being moved by faith is a familiar theme in scripture. I like to think of the connection between mountains and the temple and how it may be that our faith can move the mountain of the temple into our lives. That might be an individual application of that concept. And I also think about modern prophets in our dispensation who have uh, moved according to the will of the Lord and had temples moved into places and erected into places where we never would have imagined that that could happen. Freiburg, Germany comes to mind as does President Nelson's recent announcement about a temple in Shanghai, China. And the temple is now being erected in India, so on and so forth. So the mountain of the Lord's house is being moved to the people through faith. Then Moroni continues in this prayer to the Lord in speaking more about the concept of faith. So this provides us with an addition to his earlier discourse. He says, For thus didst thou manifest thyself unto thy disciples, For after they had faith and did speak in thy name, thou didst show thyself unto them in great power. And I also remember that thou hast said, now here is how we will kind of move into this next section as Moroni talks about this, that thou hast said that thou hast prepared a house for man, yea, even among the mansions of my father. Think again here about the temple and its relationship and the way that it might be a type of this ultimate dwelling place that Moroni is talking about here. In which man might have a more excellent hope. Wherefore, man must hope, or he cannot receive an inheritance in the place which thou hast prepared. So, the thing at stake here, as Moroni moves into this, is this inheritance in this place which has been prepared. This is the thing that he wants for his readers. And so, that's what he's discussing with the Lord. And he will now acknowledge the way, Uh, think of that as a name title of the Savior the way that has been prepared so that the children of man can make it to this ultimate heavenly destination that has been prepared. Uh, In other scriptures, it has been called the rest of the Lord. So he says in verse 33, and again, I remember that thou hast said that thou hast loved the world, even unto the laying down of thy life for the world, that thou mightest take it again to prepare a place for the children of men. So this is spoken of very eloquently in other scripture in other ways. The book of Hebrews is one of those where it talks about the necessity of the Savior going through this process so that this place, this place of rest, can be prepared for the children of men. So Moroni is acknowledging the role of the Savior in this place, and he's talking specifically about the love that is demonstrated in this act, and then talks about how it must be reciprocated and how the children of men must take upon themselves the same love. So he says in verse 34, And now I know that this love which thou hast had for the children of men is charity. Wherefore, except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit that place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. Regarding this reciprocity, Ogden and Skinner have said, God himself was willing to lay down his life for us. That is the epitome of love. And that love is charity. And we also must be willing to pay the price to gain that love or charity, or we will not reside in the mansions of the Father. So that's a beautiful restatement, I think, of what's at stake here and what it is that is weighing heavily upon Moroni. First, it was the weakness in his writing and the ability of the record to come forth and do what it is meant to do in the latter days. And the other is that once the Gentiles do receive it, will they be able to take upon themselves this charity? which will bring them back into the rest of the Lord. Verse 35, he says, Wherefore I know by this thing which thou hast said, that if the Gentiles have not charity because of our weakness, that thou wilt prove them, and take away their talent, yea, even that which they have received, and give unto them who shall have more abundantly. Well, that's in keeping with prophecies that we found in the Book of Mormon. One is the Lord's words, really, in Third Nephi chapter 16, where he talks about the day of the Gentiles and how they will be the carriers for this uh, record of the Jews, and they will come to this continent. Uh, They will initially displace the remnants of the seed of Lehi in so doing, and we know that that is all historically true. Then we are told in 3 Nephi chapter 16, and the Lord quotes from Micah, that as time goes on, this will be taken away from the Gentiles, and instead Israel will move among them as a lion. And so the same thing is being referred to here by Moroni when he says that ultimately the Gentiles shall lose their talent if they don't honor the covenant, which they initially were carriers of. And then he says in verse 36, and it came to pass that I prayed unto the Lord that he would give unto the Gentiles grace that they might have charity. So looking forward into the future, this is Moroni's great concern. It's the concern that the Lord addressed, again, in Third Nephi chapter 16 and in other places, and the concern that his father, Mormon, spoke so much about. So now here's the Lord's response in verse 37. And it came to pass that the Lord said unto me, If they have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee. Now, does it matter in general? Yes, very much it does. But unto thee, Moroni, you've done all you can. Thou hast been faithful, wherefore thy garments shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. So notice the verbiage. The Lord once again says, seen thy weakness. It's not just that you have this weakness, Moroni. It's because you've seen it. You've come unto me, and I have shown it to you. And you have been willing to subject yourself and to subject me to this view of your weakness. And because you have done this, I can now cover you with the clothing of the atonement. And that is what will make Moroni strong. And he will ultimately be able to sit down in the place which I've prepared in the mansions of my father. Now this phrase, sitting down in the place which I've prepared in the mansions of my father, is directly related to the word reconciliation. President Nelson once spoke of this. This is a word that has re, con, and sile. The word con means with, and sile, C-I-L-E, means to sit, and re, of course, means again. So it is to sit with again. So when you are reconciled to God, you are ultimately accorded the exalting privilege of sitting down in the place which I have prepared, in the mansions of my Father, as the Savior puts it here at the end of verse 37. President Nelson, on another occasion, has said that we should not be discouraged or depressed by our shortcomings. No one is without weakness. As part of the divine plan, we are tested to see whether we master weakness or let weakness master us. Proper diagnosis is essential to proper treatment, said by a doctor, of course. But wishing for strength won't make us strong. It takes faith and work to shore up a weakened cord of integrity. We know the process of self-repair called repentance. That's in his talk called Perfection Pending. Now, this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, uh, with reference to this charity that uh, Moroni wants his future readers to possess so that they can inherit this ultimate rest. He wants the Lord's efforts in preparing the way to not be made in vain. He doesn't want him to have atoned for us in vain or for any of mankind in vain, and he wants them to avail themselves of the way that he is prepared. So that's what all of this is about. So the Institute Manual says the Savior showed the most perfect charity or sacrificial love when he gave his life and atoned for each of us. We must pray that we may be filled with this love so that we can inherit eternal life. And Moroni, and actually it's Mormon, will teach us that later in in Moroni chapter 7, verse 48. Elder Marvin J. Ashton of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained what it means to have charity. He said, charity is perhaps in many ways a misunderstood word. We often equate charity with visiting the sick, or taking in casseroles to those in need, or sharing our excess with those who are less fortunate. But really, true charity is much, much more. Real charity is not something you give away. It is something that you acquire and make part of yourself. And when the virtue of charity becomes implanted in your heart, you are never the same again. It makes the thought of putting others down repulsive. Perhaps the greatest charity comes when we are kind to each other. When we don't judge or categorize someone else, when we simply give each other the benefit of the doubt or remain quiet. Charity is accepting someone's differences, weaknesses, and shortcomings, having patience with someone who has let us down, or resisting the impulse to become offended when someone doesn't handle something the way we might have hoped. Charity is refusing to take advantage of another's weakness and being willing to forgive someone who has hurt us. Charity is expecting the best of each other. Well, as we can see and as we will see when we come to Moroni chapter 7, the end of Moroni chapter 7 in particular, that is an outcome that Moroni truly wants for each of us. So now as his final gesture in this chapter, Moroni does turn to us as readers and in these final four verses bids a farewell that reflects an understanding on his part that this is the final opportunity he will have to bid his readers farewell. Then when we come to the opening of his self-titled book, the book of Moroni, we'll discover that his life is prolonged and he has more opportunity to write. But here we will see what he believes to be his final farewell. So verse 38 says, And now I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood." There's that notion and that image that has been put forward by other prophets as well. This image of garments not spotted with your blood. There could be one specific reason that Moroni gave this beautiful final farewell and that there is another final farewell later. This particular farewell was actually read by Joseph and Hiram in the Carthage jail. So I'd like to read about that. Ogden and Skinner say these verses, meaning verses 36 through 38... Were read by Hiram Smith just before his martyrdom and that of his brother Joseph. And how appropriate were these words to that occasion? The Lord's assurance that Joseph and Hiram were full of charity and were faithful, that they would be cleansed, made strong, and exalted. They bid farewell, as did Moroni, to the Gentiles and to their brethren whom they loved. Well, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has very memorably spoken about this as well. He did this in his general conference talk called Safety for the Soul, I believe it was in 2009, and he actually held Hiram Smith's copy of the Book of Mormon in his hands, which he'll tell us in this uh, segment from his talk. He said, when Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram started for Carthage to face what they knew would be an imminent martyrdom, Hiram read these words to comfort the heart of his brother, and those words again are Ether chapter 12, verses 36 through 38, what we have just read. These are a few short verses from the twelfth chapter of Ether in the Book of Mormon. Before closing the book, Hiram turned down the corner of the page from which he had read, marking it as part of the everlasting testimony for which these two brothers were about to die. Later, when actually incarcerated in the jail, Joseph the prophet turned to the guards who held him captive and bore a powerful testimony of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Shortly thereafter, Pistol and ball would take the lives of these two testators. Then Elder Holland said, As one of a thousand elements of my own testimony of the divinity of the Book of Mormon, I submit this as yet one more evidence of its truthfulness. In this their greatest and last hour of need, I ask you, would these men blaspheme before God by continuing to fix their lives, their honor, and their own search for eternal salvation on a book, And of course, by implication, a church and a ministry that they had fictitiously created out of whole cloth. Never mind that their wives are about to be widows and their children fatherless. Never mind that their little band of followers will yet be houseless, friendless, and homeless. And that their children will leave footprints of blood across frozen rivers and an untamed prairie floor. Never mind that legions will die and other legions live, declaring in the four quarters of this earth that they know the Book of Mormon and the church which it espouses to be true. Disregard all of that and tell me whether in this hour of death these two men would enter the presence of their eternal judge, quoting from and finding solace in a book, which if not the very word of God would brand them as impostors and charlatans until the end of time. They would not do that. They were willing to die rather than deny the divine origin and the eternal truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. So it's very interesting and beautiful and significant here as we uh, are in, coming to the end of Ether chapter 12 uh, to know that Joseph and Hiram regarded the Book of Mormon this way and used it this way in their very last hour and that it indeed was this particular passage where the Lord spoke to Moroni with respect to charity and then where Moroni bid this final farewell. It was this passage that they read in their final hours in Carthage. Now, in his farewell, Moroni will tell us this in verses 39 through 41. And then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus. So, count me among those many that I spoke of earlier who, like the brother of Jared, penetrated the veil and saw Jesus. Ye shall know that I have seen Jesus, and that he hath talked with me face to face And that he told me in plain humility, even as a man telleth another in mine own language concerning these things. Now notice that in this encounter with the Savior, Moroni makes reference to the humility. That's something we've just spoken of, the humility of the Savior. What an interesting way to describe his exalted Savior, that he spoke to him in plain humility, and then also to refer to language, which is kind of the crux of the issue as he talks about the the weakness inherent in his record. So the Savior Himself spoke in perfect, plain language and in plain humility, even as a man telleth another in mine own language concerning these things. Ogden and Skinner have written Moroni gained knowledge and testimony by personal, face to face experience with the Lord Jesus. This is the opportunity extended to all individuals who measure up to the standard set by Moroni, Nephi, Jacob, Isaiah, and many others. The Lord said to the prophet Joseph Smith, and this is in Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verse 1, Verily, thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me, and calleth on my name, and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments, shall see my face and know that I am. Note what Moroni himself said in verse 41, where he says, I would commend you to seek this Jesus. Bruce R. McConkie has written in The Promised Messiah, We have no way of knowing how many mortal persons have seen the Lord. Individual saints and prophets have seen him in all dispensations, and sometimes he has appeared to large congregations. We know that many, exceedingly great many, is the term that's used in Alma chapter 13, verse 12, have enjoyed this privilege. We are left to assume that there are far more occasions, thousands or tens of thousands of times over, that we do not know of than those of which we do have knowledge. Then Moroni says in verse 40, and only a few have I written. And we would say, a few what? Well, from the previous verse, he said these things. So a few of these things have I written because of my weakness in writing. Again, there's a great deal more reinforcing the idea one more time that to us the scriptures need to be a conduit of revelation, an instrument of revelation. And when, uh, as Alma once put it, the word is found in us, that is the character and nature of Jesus Christ that has been inculcated into us by our study of the scriptures and the way in which we have communicated to the Lord through them as a conduit. So now he gives us his final utterance in verse 41 saying, And now I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of them, may be and abide in you forever. Amen. So, such beautiful language here by Moroni that sounds uh, very similar to the way that Paul ended many of his epistles. And again, this admonition or this invitation to seek Jesus. Especially in the context of the interactions that Moroni had himself with the Savior and that he recorded for us here in this chapter, this is a very compelling invitation. Ogden and Skinner have written, And now I would commend you to seek this Jesus. Indeed, we should actively seek the Lord, pursue rigorously to become acquainted with him by study, by faith, and by service. When we want to know him more than anything else in the world, when we seek him first above all things, then we will have the privilege of seeing and knowing for ourselves. I think it's very beautiful that the word abide is used at the very end of this record in Moroni's final farewell, that they may abide in you. Uh, I think maybe my favorite New Testament story is the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus and how they ask this mysterious stranger to abide with them for longer. And uh, he does, of course... Dine with them, and then they have this moment of recognition. There's something so beautiful about that, and it resonates with our longing to have the Lord abide with us forever. And in our mortal and fallen state, we wish for that so much, and we have these wonderful flashes of light where we are aware at more times than others that He is abiding with us through the gift of the Holy Ghost. But we look forward to a time when he would abide with us and in us forever. And so this is Moroni's closing thought. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has spoken about this word, and he did this in a conference report in April of 2004. He said, "...abide in me is an understandable and beautiful enough concept in the elegant English for the King James Bible, but abide is not a word we use much anymore." So I gained even more appreciation for this admonition from the Lord when I was introduced to the translation of this passage in another language. In Spanish, and remember Elder Holland spent a year in Chile, in Spanish that familiar phrase is rendered permaneced in me. And sorry for that <laughs> pronunciation. Like the English verb abide, permanence here means to remain, to stay. But even English speakers like me can hear the root cognate there of permanence The sense of this, then, is to stay, but stay forever. Well, this sublime chapter in the Book of Mormon certainly gives us the sense that such a future does lie ahead for disciples of Christ, and that there is so much more waiting us if we will but accept these words, and accept their true author, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks to us through his prophets in these scriptures, and who, if we receive these words in meekness, we indeed will find him. This, I believe, is one of the very unique ways in which the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. As we look forward then to Ether chapter 13, we will find that it too, for about half of the chapter, is a departure from the storytelling narrative as well. About this place, which has been prepared for us among the mansions of the Father, Uh, we will learn about the New Jerusalem, That's a concept that is spoken of in the book of Revelation and can even be equated with that dwelling place of the Father and that place that has been prepared for us. But it has other meanings as well, and we'll discuss those as we come to Ether chapter 13. Then we will have a return to the storytelling narrative, albeit at a different pace because we're no longer moving from one generation to another in the narrative, but we're going to read about the final times of this final generation in the Jaredite civilization so, all of that is to come as we move closer to the end of the 15-chapter book of Ether. So, for now, of course, this brings us to the end of this magnificent chapter, Ether, Chapter 12. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon and the revised edition of Thomas Arvelletta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that his attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.